Nutter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Nutter, just talking to teachers. This week on Nailers Natter, in association with the Teacher Development Trust, I'm in conversation with Dr. Jill Berry. Jill has taught for 30 years, carrying out seven different jobs in six different schools after beginning her teaching career as a secondary English specialist. Since leaving Headship in 2010, she has worked as an associate for the National College for Teaching and Leadership, carried out a range of educational consultancy work, and completed a part-time doctorate in education. And she's researched the transition from deputy headship into headship. Jill's been involved in Woman Ed, a network designed to support aspiring and serving women leaders in education since its inception in 2012. She's conducted academic research on the development of the initiative with Dr. Kay Fuller from Nottingham University. She's spoken at several Women Ed events and contributed a chapter to the Women Ed book, 10% Braver, Inspiring Women to Lead. Jill is an advocate for the opportunities presented by social media and professional development. And she's tweeting at JillBerry102 and blogging at JillBerry102.blog. I discussed with Jill about her 30 years teaching as an English specialist, six schools, her master's, deputy headship, headship. And in difficult and turbulent times, I ask her why would anybody want to make the leap into leadership? We also spend some time talking about whether good teachers automatically make good leaders and should good teachers always be promoted out of the classroom. We decide whether um, experience should be a factor in promotion or does enthusiasm count for more than knowledge? And we talk about the key principles for anyone who is thinking about applying for leadership or headship. Having been appointed to a new position in a new school, we talk about the challenges of the period between appointment and formally taking up the role. And we discuss the crucial first 100 days in the new job and what are the challenges of these early months in the post. We tackle the transition and once you become established in the new position, how do you move being beyond the new leader? We also touch on the early careers framework and its importance in coaching or mentoring. And the conversation is based on Jill's book, Making the Leap from Deputy to Head, and that's published by Crown House. In the TDT section, Maria and Ian talk about the transformational power of the CPD audit and bespoke guidance given to schools. And this is something that I'm really passionate about and fully involved in in Blackpool. Maria also talks about the TDT framework and the potential for enhancing subject-specific CPD. She uses examples from very effective schools in the area and how we can share what they are doing. So without further ado, we have Maria and Ian waiting for us over in the studio. So over to you, Ian, and if you could just introduce yourself for the listeners. Hello, so my name's Ian Campbell and I'm a school programme leader for Teacher Development Trust. And one of the most sort of powerful ways in which we at TDT work with schools is by visiting them in person to carry out our unique CPD audit review, which involves interviewing a range of staff and working developmentally with leaders to look at the quality and culture of professional learning across the organisation. And today I'm here with my colleague Maria Cunningham, our network development leader, and I'm delighted to be able to chat to her about her experiences working with schools following this review. So, Maria, can you sort of give me an example of an area of development outlined of a TDT audit that a school might take and build upon to improve their CPD? 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is a really interesting one because um, Phil Naylor uh, of Naylor's Natter is um, carrying out this review uh, for a programme that we're running in Blackpool really successfully with schools. Uh, we use a framework designed by TDT based on what the international body of uh, evidence says makes effective professional development. And that means that the report that we generate at the end of the audit review offers a really bespoke guidance as to where a school might focus. So this really varies between schools. It could be that following the review and following these interviews and the data collected, uh, we would recommend that a school works on the cultural aspect. So the way in which staff work together, um, whether they feel trusted to really take ownership of professional learning and how well that's distributed in terms of middle leaders taking an ownership for their teams, or it might be more um, pertinent to the uh, processes and structures. So is there enough resource put into CPD or is the time used effectively? Um, is there enough time? So it can be really varied, I think, based on the needs of the school. And that's why it's so important that we can do that diagnosis and make sure that any school's CPD plan is really matching their needs and their context. Excellent. That, that, that sounds really interesting. And how would that apply to a primary school context as well? Yeah, so we say that the principles of effective professional development and how that's led in a school really shouldn't vary too much between primary and secondary contexts. Um, so one primary school that we worked with recently did some really interesting development on what uh, they had been advised in their audit, which was to take a bit more focus on subject-specific CPD and consider how, in light of the new Ofsted framework, uh, middle leaders could really be empowered to make sure that that subject-specific pedagogy and subject knowledge within their teams was really kind of high quality. So uh, one particular leader that we worked with, she uh, made sure that every single subject leader and team was uh, put in touch with or uh, engaged with subject associations. So not only were they provided with things like publications, other access to training, but also have those really rich networks that they could tap into and learn from what was going on elsewhere. And it's an interesting one because subject-specific CPD and how that is then working and planned and happens within teams has actually been a really, a really key focus and increasingly of interest to CPD leaders, I guess, as I said, because of the Ofsted framework and those new demands on middle leaders. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could definitely see the value if you're a subject specialist and you're possibly the only one in your school of being connected to things like subject associations. Definitely. And the key is that none of these aspects of our framework work in isolation. So if I think, for example, of one really great sort of gold quality school that we worked with recently, and that was a secondary school, the way in which they really transformed their CPD to be quite subject-led was that they restructured the entire timetable to kind of eliminate those less effective meetings and limit those administrative or procedural tasks to email. Um, and then they reallocated 
allocated all of that time, which I think was something like nine hours a year, to collaborative subject-specific CPD. So now groups of staff within their teams now focus on a particular learning issue. Um, They call this a threshold topic um, related to their subject that they would like to improve. So in maths, that might be concept variation. But then in history, that might be something like developing inquiry skills. And then at teaching and learning meetings subsequently, colleagues from a range of subjects kind of share how they've implemented strategies and explore then how that might be adapted or trialled between different departments. And in those interviews, colleagues said that was a really useful use of time, but also enables better sharing both within and between teams. And then across the organisation, you have way more teachers who are actually being given the opportunity to contribute to the planning and design of CPD, which in turn really contributes to that high quality culture. So subject-specific CPD isn't something that has to happen in isolation. It is something where you can collaborate with different departments. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's all to do with that message we give out at TDT, which is that CPD, the leadership of it, should really be distributed across a school or a college so that everyone feels empowered to take ownership over their own learning and knows who they can approach for that, who leads on it, but also how they can also be proactive in always developing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ian. That was a really great chat. That's right. Thank you, Maria. And uh, back to you in the studio, Phil. Thank you, Ian and Maria. So if listeners are interested in getting involved in any of the work of the Teacher Development Trust, then head over to the website, which is tdtrust.org. So without further ado, I will move into the interview with Dr. Jill Berry. Welcome to Nailers Nattering. Musings on evidence-based teaching and professional learning. Follow us on Twitter. At PNA 1977. Okay, Jill, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And uh, we're just going to start with our usual gentle introductory question. Um, so I'm going to ask you if you can tell a little bit about your story, but just want to preface that by saying there's a lot in there, isn't there? So in terms of 30 years teaching English specialist, you've worked in six different schools, you've done your master's, um, deputy headship, and of course headship. So there's lots to talk about in this story. There is. I've been very fortunate, I think. I think I've had a, a great career. Um, started teaching in 1980 and, yes, taught in six different schools. Have seven different jobs because I was internally promoted in my first school. So I've done pastoral leadership, academic leadership, um, became head of sixth form in due course, then deputy head. And I was a head for 10 years, which was definitely the job I enjoyed the most and found the most fulfilling. I've also taught adults at night school, GCSE and A-level. I've done exam marking for many years. I've done tuition, all sorts of different things. Um, I taught English and I carried on teaching English. So even as a head in the last 10 years, I taught English. And I did a master's actually 15 years into my career. And then I did a doctorate in Ed D after I finished headship in 2010, which was about the transition between deputy headship and headship. And I wrote a book about it, Making the Leap, Moving from Deputy to Head, which is very much geared at a professional audience, whereas, of course, the doctorate thesis is really designed for an academic audience. And since I finished Headship in 2010, I've done quite a lot of leadership consultancy, so various types of work where I'm supporting, aspiring and serving leaders at all levels. And I love it, and I feel very lucky to have the opportunity to do that now. 
Brilliant, brilliant. And leadership is very much going to be a focus of the discussion on the podcast today and uh, and your book as well. So um, the gentle introductory question over, let's get into the meat of the real questions. So uh, in difficult, turbulent times in education uh, and the world, and they seem to be getting ever more turbulent, this recording is taking place as Parliament has been recalled. Um, mm. Why would anybody want to make the leap into leadership? I think because it's it's an opportunity it's a privilege and it can be hugely energizing and rewarding. For me, it's all about your sphere of professional influence. So when you start teaching, those who fall within your sphere of professional influence, those whose lives you make a difference to in your professional capacity tend to be the children you teach, perhaps the children you have pastoral responsibility for. But if you move into a leadership role, you also are able to influence the lives of adults, colleagues, and working with and through them, you actually reach more children. And I think that's a huge opportunity. Um, certainly as a head, you make a difference on a scale unlike any other you will ever have known. And it is challenging, and I'm not um, one to, to downplay the challenges. I don't think it helps anyone to have a, a rose-tinted spectacle view of school leadership in the current climate but I would say it's, it's tough and it's so worth it and it seems to me working with lots of aspiring leaders at all levels including aspiring heads that these days people are fairly clear-sighted about what the challenges are and they still want to take on that mantle because we have to ask ourselves if not me then who if we're all dedicated to making education as successful as it possibly can be, then we recognize that all organizations need leaders and they need strong leaders. So you have to ask yourself, well, if I'm not going to step up, then who is? Um, And I think it is a privilege to have the opportunity to do that. And so despite the fact that it, it is taxing in a number of ways, it's a tough job, I meet an awful lot of people who are they're well up for it they go in with their eyes open but they go in (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely and um just this next question is really sort of a a two-part question really so do good teachers automatically make good leaders and should it be the case that good leaders are always promoted to the classroom and just to follow up with that i was really interested what you said at the start that even as a head you were still a classroom teacher so you know how do you kind of square that circle we need to think about what brought us into the profession in the first place. I wanted a job that enabled me to use my subject, English, which I loved. I wanted to continue to use it, to enthuse about it, and to, to learn, um, and to read more, and to discuss more. And, and English teaching was, was a tremendous opportunity to do that. But I also wanted to have an effect on children's lives. And I think what motivates people to go into leadership is that I also now want to have the opportunity to make a difference to the lives of the adults that I'm working with. Um, I don't think if you are good in the classroom, that means you will automatically be good in a leadership role with colleagues because getting the best from children and getting the best from adults, although they're related, it's it's not exactly the same. So I think there are good teachers who don't necessarily take to leadership, and that's fine. Not everyone's cut out to be a leader. Not everyone wants to be a leader. Not everyone can be a leader. On the other hand, I think a poor teacher is very unlikely to be a successful leader because I don't think then you have the credibility 
um, and the understanding and the capacity to build relationships that leadership requires. So leadership is about getting the best from people. Teaching is about getting the best from students. But of course, when you move from just working with children to working with children and adults, it's, it's a fresh challenge. It's a new perspective, if you like. When I was head of English, I don't think I was necessarily the best English teacher in the department. I wasn't the worst. I was a very good teacher, but I wouldn't say I was necessarily consistently outstanding. I think some of the people in my team were probably more gifted in the classroom than I was, but that didn't matter because that wasn't my job. My job as head of English was to help them be the best they could be, to support and challenge them to reach their professional best. So... I think you need to be a very capable teacher, a good teacher. I don't think if you are an outstanding teacher, you will necessarily automatically be an outstanding leader. But I think if you're a poor teacher, your chances of succeeding in leadership actually aren't, aren't terribly great. Mm. And in terms of you teaching um, GCSE English, um, for example, as the head teacher... Do you feel that that enhanced, I know that you wouldn't have done it for these reasons, but do you feel that that enhanced your credibility in terms of your staff and, and what kind of impact did that have on them? I think the fact that I continued to teach throughout my headship was, it made a statement about how important teaching is and how really this is what it's all about and let's not, let's not forget that ever. And it, it does keep you grounded in the classroom. I didn't teach GCSE, I only taught year seven. And I taught one lesson with every year seven class every year. And it was more about the relationship building, really. I said to the head of English, first of all, are you happy for me to do this? This is your department. And when I'm teaching English, you're my boss. I accept that just because I'm the head. You're still my boss in, within this context. Um, and I also said, it, it is, I will do a good job teaching English, but this is very much about building relationships. It's about making that connection with each individual learner. It's about learning their names, them knowing me, and feeling that I know them. And when I look back, it was one of the best decisions I made as a head, because by October half term every year, I knew the names of all that year group. When I'd done it for seven years, I knew the name of every student in the, the senior school. Um, and when I stood up in assembly and looked around, so I could tell you the name of every pupil here. And I'm the only person on the staff who can, because I'm the only one who's lucky enough to have taught them all. Um, so it was a very important statement, and it meant I was in the classroom several times every week. And I would never organize anything to cut across that. You know, if I was in school, I was teaching. I wouldn't be in a meeting. I wouldn't be doing something that was you know, I considered to be more important. But I was paired with the English teacher who taught each class for the rest of the week. So if I did have to be out at you know, a meeting out of school that I had no control over, those children were taught English. So they didn't suffer in any way from being taught one lesson a week by the head. And if you do teach as a head, you have to be very clear why you're doing it. If it's just because you love teaching and you would miss it, I think that's self-indulgent. I don't think you should teach for that reason. If there's any possibility that the children you teach will lose out because they're being taught by the head and the head might be pulled out of school, you shouldn't be teaching. You need to structure it in such a way that the children gain certain things and don't lose out. And I think that's what I managed to do. But it's just an important statement about what we're there for. And as a leader, I'm 
helping to develop staff and appoint staff and hopefully inspire staff and lift staff so that they can be there for the children. I really like the the John Thompson thing about how I used to say it's all about the children, the children come first, and I think that's actually quite unhelpful. And John Thompson said, no, the staff and the children have to be equal first because you can't serve the children unless you're looking after the staff and developing the staff. So it's still all about the teaching and learning and the underpinning care, but you you are having a more indirect impact on that by working with and through colleagues at all levels. And I really enjoyed that as a leader. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. As somebody who's you know in senior leadership and still teaching quite a bit, hopefully for the right reasons, in terms of you know my specific responsibility is in whole staff CPD, teaching and learning, evidence and research, that sort of thing. So mm. to be still in the classroom and you know, sort of walking the walk of these things that we're talking about does give me a little bit more, you know, understanding of what it's like to be a member of staff in the school and a bit of perspective in terms of how the, the decisions that we make impact on the staff and the pupils. I think absolutely, absolutely. And things like, you know, your your marking policies or your feedback policies or whatever you decide to do, you know, you, you, you're implementing those policies, not just in the abstract, but in the concrete, in the classroom. When I was a deputy, I did a lot of teaching. I did a lot of A-level and GCSE teaching as well as other year groups. It was only as a head that I, I would do, I do guest lessons sometimes with the sixth form, especially if someone happened to be out and I happened to be free, I'd go in and do a, an A-level lesson, just, just a one-off to support them. Um, but as a deputy, I, I did a lot of exam classes, and I think it was really useful to be able to say, I do understand. But one of the pieces of advice I would give to senior leaders, if you move into senior leadership, never forget what it's like to teach a full timetable. Mm-hmm. Never forget that. Because we have pressures and we're busy as senior leaders and heads, but it's a different kind of pressure and it's a different kind of busy. And if you forget just how frenetic it can sometimes be, to teach a full timetable then it's hard to lead all those staff who are doing exactly that i think that's such a good point and my science department will never let me forget what it's like to teach a full timetable. <laughs> good look, look and you listen to them it's good that you listen <laughs> absolutely um moving on to the next question so um I had to do some research for a recent piece that I wrote for the Royal Society of Chemistry um, with a shameless plug that was called Young and in Charge. But one of the things I looked at is the changing demographic of leaders and head teachers. Um, and lots of head teachers being appointed now, late 20s, early 30s. So the question I'm coming round to is, should experience be a factor in any promotion, particularly to headship? And does enthusiasm count for more than knowledge at some of those sort of earlier stages? I think you need both. Um, and, and I see this as well, and I think it's one of the effects of having a, a teacher recruitment and, and retention challenge, let's say, that, that people are promoted early. Um, I have two goddaughters in teaching who are great, but the, the speed at which they seem to have accelerated through the levels is a bit breathtaking. And I sometimes worry that people are being promoted to significant leadership responsibilities without quite the life experience to be able to deal with some members of staff who are considerably more mature and have a lot more um, years under their belt than than the leaders. So I I don't want to sound ageist about that. And I think it is experience rather than just years teaching. And obviously quite a few people come into teaching and they've had experience in other professional areas so they bring all that with them as well it's not just 
miles on the clock. Um, when I became head of English, it was interesting. I was 31, and it was a very well-established staff in this school. And actually, at 31, I was the second youngest member of staff, and um, and I was heading a, a large department. But I wouldn't say I was inexperienced. And someone on my in my team once said something to me about lack of experience, and I said, "Can I stop you there? I haven't been teaching as long as some people. I wouldn't equate that with lack of experience." Because I'd taught in three different schools, um, I'd had three different leadership responsibilities, I'd done quite a lot beyond the classroom, like you know, exam marking, whatever. So it, it isn't about age, but it, it is sometimes about life experience, about maturity, about empathy, about emotional intelligence, because leadership is all about relationships. And I think sometimes if you accelerate too quickly through the levels, you're almost heading for a fall because you're being presented with things that you don't necessarily have those life skills. Um, but I do think enthusiasm is really important because the, the opposite doesn't work. If you just think, well, they've been teaching so long, therefore they're ready for this responsibility. It, it is about skills. It is about temperament. It's about your approach. It's about your philosophy. So, yes, you do need both. I think sometimes people are promoted too quickly and find they've been promoted beyond their competence. And that doesn't mean to say they would never be able to do that job, but perhaps things have just accelerated a little too rapidly. And I think it's a danger. Mm. I mean, looking at sort of the demographic of leadership in terms of age, but also in terms of positions that people have taken up. So because budgets are tight, because there's the, the kind of financial restraint there, people are given extra leadership responsibilities on top of everything else that they're doing. And those positions tend to go to newer, you know, potentially younger teachers because they're more willing or more able to be able to do the extra work that comes with that. So that's a little bit of a challenge as well. It may be, and, and I think one of the things that also alarms me a little bit is how, how large some senior teams are getting, because I think with the recruitment and retention issues, some heads are trying to hold on to promising early career teachers by giving them promotion, giving them opportunities, when actually probably what they need to do is consolidate in their current position and then move somewhere else for a different job people don't want them to move so what can we offer them to keep them here and i look at some schools where there just seems to be a proliferation of senior roles and the the effect on the staff in terms of trickling down workload can be really quite damaging because someone has a job sometimes it's a new post they're, they're very keen they're very enthusiastic they want to make their mark and unless someone has a really clear overview of how the senior leadership team is working and what demands they are making as individuals, on, often it's the head of department, actually, sometimes it's the classroom teacher, they're getting emails and, and requests from all angles, everybody plowing their own furrow, and I'm really interested in this particular element of leadership. But actually what's happening to the teacher in the classroom and the head of department, the middle leader, is that they're just collapsing under the weight of all this expectation so i think you need to be very careful when you do have lots of very keen people running all these projects and it's fantastic but someone needs to have a very clear overview of actually what impact that is having on everybody else and um, someone called roger Caseby wrote a really good blog about how in his school, every time they introduce some initiative, they, they do a workload impact assessment. If we do this, what's going to be the impact? And if it is going to increase workload, then what are we taking away? What are we stopping 
resting, pausing, whatever it might be, because otherwise we're just in a hamster wheel and, and, and pedaling faster and faster, and it's not sustainable. So I do think there are dangers in having too many leaders all desperately trying to make their mark. We need to look at the school as a whole and the, the impact on the staff who can't just be exhausted and ground down. No, absolutely. And I was <coughs> nodding along there and thinking, I couldn't agree more. And I've worked on teams that are big. I've worked on smaller teams, you know, over probably over 10 years in, in senior leadership now. And, and it, it's, it's almost a danger when you have those big teams that people are almost having to justify an existence and justify a job yeah. by the number of things that they have to be seen to be doing to make sure that they stay on that team. And you're right, it's, yeah. it's impacting on the middle leadership and the classroom teachers of this yeah. intervention overload that seems to happen yeah. and, and you know nobody can get a hold of that. I don't know what your reflections are on this now, Jill, but I think that schools that I'm working with seem to be streamlining more their senior leadership yeah. teams and going back to a more traditional structure of head well perhaps a ceo of an academy trust and then a head and a couple of deputy heads and maybe a few assistant head teachers i'm talking secondary. I, I think i mean it depends and, and i don't think it's about structure i think it's about it's about perspective and it's about overview um i, I think that the important thing is that people recognize that it, if we could do less and do it better phil it would take us further forward i think streamlining is important not just streamlining of, of structures and, and teams but in terms of priorities you know, what are we really going to focus on this term this year what could we perhaps park for now what is on the horizon it's on our radar we need to look at that we don't need to do it now and i think sometimes again we're, we're just driving ourselves and each other too hard because we're trying to solve everything and we're not doing anything quite as well as we probably could. So whether you're a middle leader, a senior leader, a head, a CEO, I think there needs to be some clear vision and priorities and a simplification, really, I think would, would strengthen what we had to offer and, and the, the provision that the students got. Mm, absolutely okay so i'm just going to move into the next section of the podcast and i'm going to look at your book making the leap now uh, in another sort of shameless mention of uh, edu celebrities so as you know Stephen tierney is our ceo and he actually yes. he actually gave me your book so he oh. it was a well-thumbed copy that he'd read cover to cover <laughs> and i even think i've got some of his notes on uh, this here as well so this is well read book and it's something that i've used a lot um i haven't, I haven't been successful in making the leap from assistant head to deputy yet never mind deputy to head but if and when i do um i feel like i should be ready so if i could just unpick some of these sections with you a little bit so the first thing is what are the key principles for anyone who is thinking about applying for headship i think one of the thing about making the leap is that i was specifically thinking about making the leap to headship because it was based on my research and that was my focus. I had six participants who were all deputies. They'd already got their headships and I tracked them through the final months of deputy headship into the early months of headship. And I, I analysed the transition and, and the challenges and the strategies and what the experience was like. But actually, the book is about making any leap and a lot of the advice in it is just as relevant if you're going for your first middle leader position or a senior leader position or one senior leader position to another. I actually wrote a blog about moving from assistant head to deputy, Phil, because someone said to me, what I, is I, there I know, out there? I know, I know you did. And I said, there's not much, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll write something. Mm. And I think it's quite difficult because 
assistant headship is a broad church, deputy headship is a broad church. Some people are called assistant heads, but in effect their job is a deputy job. So it's, it's quite complex and nuanced. But I think, so making the leap really, whatever the leap is, I think it's about doing your research and finding your fit. So not every job that has the title of the job that you think you want next is, is the right one. It's not necessarily the right context. It might not be the right time. So do your research, find your fit. Use the research, not just to decide whether you're going to apply, but to make your application really strong and persuasive and convincing because you need to demonstrate this is what the job seems to require, this is what the school seems to require, this is what I have to offer. And based on my past experience and achievements and my learning and my impact, I can show that what you need and what I bring are aligned. And I, I read a lot of draft applications, and I read too many that just start with a list of everything I've done in the past, and I think, no, don't do that. And don't use a previous application, just turn it out again. You need to start with where they are, not where you are. You need to think, what do they seem to need, and how can I connect that to what I have to, to contribute? And use the words contribute, bring, give, offer. Um, and that, if, if your letter is sufficiently compelling, will get you to interview where you just do more persuading. And, and you're, you're learning, you're finding out, you're listening to people, you're tuning in to this particular school at this particular point in its history and, and what contribution you can make, you know, how you can add value by bringing your insights, your temperament, your skills which should complement the skills of other people in the team and the school. So whatever the promotion is, whatever the job is, not just headship, those I think are the key principles that you need to bear in mind through through the process. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just looking at uh, the section where you talk about uh, one of my favourite books, which is um, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. So, yeah. and And looking at the point at which you have been successful and got an interview and then you're in yeah. front of a panel which can include middle leaders and some senior leaders and it's how much do you look at finding what's good about the school already and how much you can mm. emphasize that and then how much you can make small changes without saying mm. everything that you've done before that you would currently bring to this to this school and, and that's a challenge definitely it is because sometimes when you apply there are things you've done that you're really proud of but that you think well actually that is not as relevant that's that's not really what this job is focused on and you have to have the self-discipline and the courage to say i'm just going to put that on one side i'm going to concentrate on other things i looked at um um a cv today for someone who's applying for headship and and in terms of professional development, she'd just kind of put down everything that she'd ever done almost and i said i would always say recent relevant professional development includes and then just put down the stuff that clearly aligns with the job description and the person specification that you're going for so you need to be selective you need to and if you're writing something or saying something you need to be constantly asking the so what question mm. why am i saying this why am i telling this so what? what what does that show about me that's relevant to this job what skills am i discussing here that align with the areas of responsibility of the job I'm trying to secure. So I think you need to be quite 
Well, you need to be discriminating about what you apply for in the first place and when, but you also need to be discriminating about what you include in the application, what you focus on at interview or when you're visiting. And you constantly need to be tuning in because every school is different. And if you go in blindly thinking, I know how to do this job, I've, I've done a similar job in a different context, second headships can be notoriously unsuccessful because people sometimes go in and think, I can do this job, I've done this job, I've been a successful head, I know what to do. And they don't question their assumptions, they don't look at the, the legacy that they're inheriting from the previous head, they don't think about what this particular context requires and as you say it is about what are the strengths and how can we build on those what's going well here that we need to preserve and maybe develop further and are there new ideas i can bring but you have to be able to do that in a very sensitive way which doesn't seem really critical of what's gone before because actually that's disrespectful and rude and you're not you don't know enough yet to be able to to condemn what's gone before and what you and pet project that you've done in another school that you're really passionate about may not actually be right in this context. You have to try to to suss it all out. Mm. And it's a real fine balance between looking to say what impact you'll bring and complementing the skills of the senior leadership team that you've already got. Absolutely, because how do you fit in? Sometimes you could... One of the things I say to people when they're disappointed, if you don't get a job, it doesn't mean to say you couldn't have done it. It doesn't even mean to say you couldn't have done it well. But maybe what you had to bring didn't quite complement what was already there. Maybe you were too similar to someone else on the senior team and what they needed was something different that would that would complement and fit in. Um, so it is about how you are going to lead that team, how you are going to... to to build and, and develop and take that team forward. Interestingly, the other day I had um, I went down to London with the woman who she's in her eighties now, but she was the head who appointed me as her deputy. And when she appointed me, she knew that she was going a year later, so she knew she was only going to work with me for a year. And she said, "Actually, I recognise that you and I are quite similar, but because I was going at the end of that year." I thought you had what the school needed. If we'd been working together for five to ten years, I might not have appointed you because you and I were, were probably too alike. So it was what the school needed at that particular point in its journey. So complementary skills and the idea that the, the team, the whole should be greater than the sum of its parts. What people can achieve together is, is so much greater than what any individual can achieve. It, you know, adding it all together, it has to have a dynamism, if you like, of its own and energy. There was a piece in the um, test last week about team dynamics and saying if, if a team isn't working, it may not be that the individual members are incompetent. It's just that they're not working well together. And right, And the leader has responsibility for trying to make the dynamic better. Absolutely. So it's fascinating stuff. Um, just looking at people that are appointed to new positions in a different school. So what are the challenges of the period between appointment and formally taking up the role? And, and I mean that in the sense, obviously, you covered it in chapter three of your book, but both from the perspective of the school that you are leaving to manage that transition period, because you're still, presumably, going for headship or a senior role, quite a significant player in, in that school and managing the leading to the new post. 
It is a challenge um, for lots of reasons. You're balancing different things. You need to do, be doing a very good job in your own school, and you're employed there until the end of August or whatever, and, and really your loyalties need to be there. But at the same time, inevitably, your head is starting to feel pulled somewhere else. And, and sometimes you're asked to be involved in the new school or make decisions or get involved in interviews or whatever it might be. So you're juggling things. But any, any good senior leader, aspiring head, is a master juggler. We're all juggling all the time. So you ought to be able to keep those things in balance as far as you can. Um, the, the main opportunity of the lead-in period is the opportunity to, to learn, to continue to prepare, to fill a few gaps, to start to establish yourself, to start to build relationships with your governors, your senior team, whoever you can really. And I talk in the book about how it's a chance to know and be known. So you get to know more and more about the context you're moving into, but you also get the chance to begin to be known and to establish yourself so that people know who you are, what you're about, and they know something about the leader you really one day hope to be. And you may not be, well, you won't be that leader on day one. It may take time because... We build the bridges, we walk on it. You learn to be ahead from being ahead. You can prepare in a number of different ways, but you don't complete your preparation. Probably even by the time you move out of that role, you're still still learning. So the lead-in period is a really important time. Um, there are some, thinking about headship specifically, some outgoing heads who feel a little bit threatened by this incoming successor. So sometimes the heads that you're, taking over from may not be as welcoming and as constructive as they could be and although I can sympathize with their feeling maybe pushed out or redundant or surplus to requirements that's something that the governors actually have to tackle because it isn't about the outgoing head it isn't about the incoming head either it's about the school and the transition has got to be well managed or the school can suffer. So that's one of the challenges of the lead-in period. But it's a great opportunity as well. And certainly by the end of my lead-in period, which was 12 months, it was a full year, I felt I'd, I'd moved forward in my understanding and in establishing my relationships. And when I started my headship, looking back, things went much more smoothly than they might have done because I think that year had been well used by me and by the school and I think I've managed to, to establish myself there without dropping the ball in the school where I was a deputy and doing a busy job there already. Mm. And I'm just thinking about that. Some schools now have got very long lead-in periods, so jobs that have been advertised, you know, say, at the moment, might be a September 2020 start, for example. Yeah. Just a smaller question, really. You know, how important is it to make you know, the wider staff aware of the fact that you are leaving and, and is there the potential for, I think of a football analogy, but as soon as a football manager announces that they're going at the end of the season, you know, performances dip. So how important is it to communicate that and who should you communicate that to? I think you need to be as transparent and open as you possibly can. I know there are sensitivities around when you release information, but it's awful to be in the position where you're not able to be completely honest with people because, you're trying to, to protect confidentiality. So it, it does need to be properly managed. Um, I mean, my, my feeling is that having more time is, is better than being tight for time. So I'd rather have a, 
a year's lead-in period than than a term. I, I think, it, for me, it was very useful. Um, and I announced, well, I, I mean, I said I'd be ahead in that school for 10 years, and periodically I reminded people that it was 10 years. So there wasn't a, a sense of, of surprise when I when I was going um, but we appointed my successor early and I was able to say to the staff and to the parents and to the next generation of parents coming in well it's ages until I go and, and I'm not going to be ineffective in this last year I want to make my last year almost the best year I possibly can and then and we've got a fantastic head coming in after me and she's already coming in and meeting people and using her lead-in period so there are ways that you can manage it um I think it it would be unprofessional of anybody to to really take their eye off the ball and think well actually I don't feel so committed to this job now I just can't wait to go and I, I can't wait to to drop some of these things that, that I don't really enjoy or can I hand them on to somebody else as early as possible? I think that's unprofessional. I think we need to do the best possible job we can. Um, just one, one interesting aside here, Phil. I did some work with um, middle leaders in a school. I'm doing a lot of work with middle leaders, actually. It's interesting. I think a lot of schools have recognized the fact that if you want to secure even better standards of teaching and learning you need to work to strengthen your middle tier they are really key um and it was a program of, of twilight sessions and one woman looked very disgruntled and she came up to me at the beginning and she said i just want to say i'm retiring at the end of this year so what on earth is the point in me doing this leadership training and, and she she sort of had a little bit of a rant and then I said, you know, when you teach a student in year nine and they come up at the start of the year and say, I just want to say that I'm not going to do your subject for GCSE, so why should I bother to do anything this year? How does that make you feel? Don't you think that if it is your last year, you want to make it as good a year as it possibly can be? You might be retiring. You've not gone yet. If there are things you can learn, if there are ways your leadership can be even more effective... Isn't that what you want to do for the team you lead, for the students you serve, for the school that you've been at for however many years? And she was actually fine, and she was great on the course, and she did try, and she did learn. But there was just a moment of, well, I'm going, so what does it matter? It always matters. It matters, doesn't it, till the last day you're in post. Um, and I, I, I think people who are committed and who are dedicated and conscientious they they don't give up i've certainly never given up i've given my all till the last day in post even when i might have been feeling very excited and energized about what came next mm. okay so moving on from the last days in the, your current post into the sort of the crucial first hundred days in a new job um so what are the challenges of those early months in a new position um, one of the things that, that very much came out of my research was the idea of assumptions. We all have assumptions, and we don't realize they're assumptions. We think this is just how it works. So I think we need to do a lot of listening. We need to ask questions rather than making statements all the time. And sometimes you're very much pushed to make statements. You know, what are your priorities? What do you want to achieve? What, you know, what are you planning to do in the first 100 days? And the answer is I'm going to do as much as I can to take the temperature, um, to learn, to listen, to work with people, to build those relationships. 
So I think you need to recognize that you, you're not the Messiah, you don't come in with all the answers, and that you need to work with the people that you're going to be leading. You need to get to know them, they need to get to know you. I had one-to-one um, meetings with all the teaching staff and a lot of the support staff in my first in my first term, actually, 20-minute meetings. And I just said, tell me one thing about the school you hope might change in the next few years, one thing you hope will never change, and I just want to listen. I just want to take the temperature. And for lots of reasons, I, I, I'm really pleased I did that because people thought this is someone who's interested in us. She wants to know what's working and what's strong, what to protect. My view, my voice matters. Um, and one woman, I think I talk about in in the book, she said, can I just say before I tell you my two things, you know, I've been here 11 years, I'm a parent at the school, she was part-time PE teacher, she had never had a one-to-one conversation with the head before, and I've certainly never been asked what I thought about the school before, and as she walked out of my office, I thought this was worth doing, for that remark alone. So, first 100 years, ask questions, listen to the answers, show you listening, feedback, can you have some quick wins where people recognize that actually this person is taking seriously what we think? Um, and I, I tweeted um, SLT chat Sunday of last week, I think. It was about staff voice. And I said, I remember ahead saying, sign of a really good school is where the least experienced member of staff can have an idea and know it will be taken seriously. I think you need to bear that in mind. It's not just the people who've the longest or who are most senior when I saw these staff I said to my PA I don't want to see the senior leaders and the middle leaders and the teachers and the support staff that sends absolutely the wrong message I want to see everybody mix them all up and, and I will just listen and then I'll draw some conclusions from what I've learned no fantastic fantastic so once you become established in a new leadership position so how do you move beyond being seen as the new leader and and the other the, the side issue to that is i think of you know sort of new leaders that i've worked with sometimes who you know you have a kind of nudging joke around the slt table when they say at my last place we did this at my oh, last place yeah. we did this yeah. and then eventually after a couple of years it, it wears off so how do you move yeah. beyond being that new leader it, it's a, it's really not a good idea to keep saying you know that's so and so we'd and yet we all do it it's mm. it's perhaps it's impossible to avoid but i think Rather than saying, you know, we did this, if it's in your mind that that's a, a possible route forward, it, it's far better to phrase this, have we ever thought about doing it this way or have we ever tried that or what do you think too, rather than, you know, at my last place, therefore this is what we ought to be doing here. I think it's difficult. I think it actually probably takes a couple of years before you really feel it's your school. I went to, I do some mentoring of new heads and I went to visit one new head um, this week. She's just starting year two and she said it does, it's starting to feel like my school now as I go into to year two. The yearly cycle helps, doesn't it? When you've been round the year's calendar and you've experienced different things and you know, you've had your first this, that and the other and you think, right, th- there's something familiar about this. No, I know how it tends to work here. Um, but I do think it takes a while. And, and my advice to to new heads who then become, you know, you're not the new head anymore years ahead, is just constantly to make sure you evaluate the progress you and others are making, 
give yourself credit, be kind. It won't all go absolutely swimmingly and there'll be unexpected challenges and you'll make mistakes. But, But keep assessing how far you've come and where you're going next. What are your priorities? So that you do have a sense and the people around you have a sense that you are settling, consolidating, embedding things, making an impact, making it yours, making your mark, making it your school. Um, I, I think probably in the first year you can sometimes say, well, sorry, got that wrong, I'm new. You can't keep saying that. <laughs> it gets to a point where actually you're not new anymore and you can't use that as an excuse for making a, a inaccurate assumption or or whatever it might be i think it's fine to change your mind about things i think compromise is a strength not a weakness um i think you have to be able to adapt flexibility is really important but i think you also have to take responsibility and accept people people don't expect their leaders to be infallible they do expect them to be honest so if anything hasn't quite gone right you need to be able to say, I'm holding my hand up there. I think I misjudged that, but I've learned I won't make the same mistake over and over again because that's what people, I think, don't accept. But it, it can take a while before you feel very much, this is my school, this is my office, this is my role. Yeah, I'm starting to feel comfortable in it. Okay, just moving into what will be the last question of this section. So uh, I'm just trying to tie up a couple of points with something that I'm particularly interested in. So we talked about the promotion of teachers out of the classroom and we talked about you know the proliferation of SLT roles with assistant heads for lots and lots of different responsibilities. So how important do you think that the early careers framework is in recognising the leadership roles of mentors and coaches? Um, I I think the early career framework is brilliant. I think it's great that there is a recognition that beginning teachers need ongoing support throughout the first few years. It's not, I mean, when I started teaching, it was a long time ago, but you did, in effect, what was your probationary year? And it's just what we were saying about when you're the new head and when you're the head. You know, as I started year two, I'd still got a huge amount to learn. So I think, I think the whole the early career framework, I think that the emphasis on coaching and mentoring is excellent, but I think we need to continue to support mid-career teachers and late-career teachers. I think heads need coaches. I think you need someone that you can turn to who is not one of your governors, who is not within your SLT or within your school, and you can just talk things through and use them as a mirror. So I do quite a bit of head coaching, and and I just need really sometimes to listen and to let people talk their way into understanding. I think coaching and mentoring of, of beginning teachers, for example, is a real two-way benefit. It's mutually beneficial because often those teachers who are maybe more experienced, more confident, they may not want a traditional leadership route, but they need some challenges and some opportunities to be energized and stimulated and coaching and mentoring and helping the development of beginning teachers can be a really positive thing for their sense of of professional achievement as well as for the beginning teachers that they're helping so coaching mentoring i'm a huge fan i think we need to keep it going throughout I, i actually wrote a blog about this as well because somebody said i tweeted something about the early career framework and they said well that's great but you know, I'm sort of 10 years in or 15 years in, I'm flagging. What can you suggest to refresh 
and re-energize me. So I, I wrote a blog about it and, and what we can do to keep ourselves really interested and stimulated and, and fresh. Um, and I think interesting about CTD, sometimes people think of professional development as, as going, for, going for promotion, really, you know, and, and it's, it's not. If you decide not to go for promotion, if you're not going to change roles, maybe you're not going to change schools, CPD is especially important to you because otherwise what's to stop you becoming stale or bored or drained? So we all need that opportunity to refresh and re-energise throughout our career. Absolutely. Well, I feel refreshed and energised from this discussion and I'm writing all sorts down on top of, uh, you know, my well-annotated copy of Making the Leap. Um, in terms... And pass it on to somebody else, though. It's a great compliment to give someone a book like that because it shows you have faith in them. Stephen has faith in you. So pass we'll, it on. We'll have to, and, cut, and I the, have to say... cut this section out of the podcast now. <laughs> 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 but yes yeah no it, it wasn't it was given in that in that sense he absolutely did and, and both simon cox and i have both read the book so you know it's something that, that we've used in training that we've done in terms of you know implementation training things like that we've looked at the, these transitions it's been really really vital to us and you're right i will find somebody that i can give it to in, in many of the different schools that i'm working in it's, it's so satisfying that I get, I get tweets and messages from people I've never met, I don't know, and they say, you know, I've read your book and it helped me, it made me feel more confident or more prepared. Whether they got the job or they didn't, it's not always about that. It's about coming out of a process feeling I did myself justice there and I'm proud of what I achieved. It was positive, I learned something, and that's going to help me for next time. So I have to say, you know, writing the book was, was a pleasure, but getting feedback from people who say it has been useful in their professional journey is just incredibly rewarding absolutely okay so just wrapping things up jill um in terms of you've talked about your blogs your leadership training all the things that you're doing is there anything that you're particularly involved with in the next few weeks or the next few months that you'd like to share with listeners um well, we're doing lots of things really so quite a lot of, of middle leadership training speaking at conferences um i'm speaking at uh, research ed during this term talking about research into the transition to headship um i'm speaking at educating norfolk um in a couple of days time and it's nice to go to places that I haven't been before so i'm i'm doing quite a bit of work in scotland at the moment i'm actually going to belfast to do something in northern ireland which which is really great just reaching a new audience um, i'm a huge fan of women ed so i have to just give a quick plug for women ed here it's a tremendous opportunity to support aspiring and serving women leaders at all levels. And I'm very pleased that I'm speaking at the Women Ed Unconference, which is in Sheffield on the 5th of October. It's based on the book, um, the Women Ed 10% Braver book, and I wrote a chapter in that about get the job you dream of. So that's what I'm, I'm talking about. But I'm just, I'm very lucky, Phil. I enjoy everything that I do. I, I love being ahead, but there were elements of headship that I enjoyed less than other bits. That's inevitable. And now it's as if I've taken all the good bits, all the bits I really enjoyed, and, and I, you know, that's what my professional life is. So I feel, I feel blessed, I have to say. Life after full-time work and life after headship can be very rich and full. So don't well, fear it. Embrace it. 
Absolutely, and what a fantastic place to finish it on because I feel equally blessed that I get to speak to people like yourself about all of these things and then share that with other people. So, Jill, thank you so much for your time this evening. Really, really appreciate it. And I'll put links to it, all the things that we've talked about and links to the book uh, on, on, on the show notes. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking me, Phil. It's, it's, really, it's really been enjoyable. Thank you. Take care. Really informative discussion there with Jill. And if you haven't got the book and you are looking at the transition to leadership, then in my view, this is an absolutely essential read. And moving in to the shameless plugs section. And the first thing to say is that I'm delighted to have become a fellow of the Chartered College of Teaching. And this is something that means a huge deal to me. And thank you so much to previous guest Emma Turner for her nomination. I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to highlight the work of the college through my own work and through the podcast. And I feel passionately that as a classroom teacher, I have a voice to influence the future of our profession. Whilst one of the thank yous, I'd also like to thank the team at TeacherTap for featuring my blog, A Routine Matter, last week. The surprise was just unbelievable. So Simon Cox, who listeners will know, is the director of the Blackpool Research School, sent me a text saying, your blog is featured on TeacherTap. Um, I'd actually looked past it, but didn't recognise it as my own, so I needed the heads up. So really, really appreciate that being flagged up. Really enjoyed writing it, and I, I do enjoy writing more widely, and I really must find the time to write more. So I appreciate the recognition, and I know how picky uh, they are at TeacherTap. And thanks also to Phil Brown for his input on this this. So Lead Learn Lanks draws ever closer. Uh, the date for that is the 12th of October. So you can see me, if you want to, uh, on session one talking about how we're using research and evidence to change culture in schools. And saying that research at Blackpool didn't need the shameless plug last week, the ticket sales have now tipped over the 600 mark, so we might have to start thinking about capping this, so stay tuned. And the last plug is for next week's podcast on we have the wonderful dame Alison Peacock who will be speaking to me about her work and the work of the Chartered College so this remains to say as ever thank you for being there, thank you for listening to Nailers Natter and see you next week Nailers Natter just talking to teachers talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers, 